0: I mentioned in the introduction that you're the author of the book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. uh, Now that we're thinking about the very beginning of the Trump administration, what are some things that President Trump can do to succeed?
1: Well, the first thing he has to do, and this I talk about a lot in the book, and it was a problem that affected both Democrats and Republicans, is he has to understand the government he runs. Because the government he runs is both the source of his greatest advantage and his biggest disadvantages. When the government you run crashes and burns, you get blamed. You're the president. The people in the country think that you're in charge of the government, even though it's a massive operation. And, you know, a lot of presidents are so put off by it that they don't spend any time learning it.
0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. That was senior fellow Elaine KMark in my interview with her on what ex-presidents do once they leave office. It was January 2017, and President Barack Obama was leaving the White House. We had a fascinating conversation about former presidents and their legacies, about the work they do, and what they are expected to do. We talked about Carter, Reagan, the Bushes, Clinton, and even George Washington. But I wanted to look ahead So I asked her to share her ideas on how President Trump could succeed in office as he embarked upon his presidency. She continued.
1: The second thing is, so sometimes this government is failing. Sometimes this government is going to give the president a big black eye. And we saw that with the Veterans Administration scandals under Obama. He looked really bad when they failed, and he didn't even seem to know that that was going on. The flip side of that is that sometimes this government knows things that a president really needs to know. And if you ignore them or you allow your options and your vision to be concentrated by somebody, uh, you're going to miss important points of view, important facts that are important in your decision making. And of course, here, the biggest example was probably the warnings that consistently came out of the State Department about Iraq and about all the downsides and all the problems there were going to be in Iraq, including severe doubts about whether or not there were weapons of mass destruction. So the point, point of the book why presidents fail is that in any entity as big as the US federal government something's going really right and something's going really wrong at the same time and when a president doesn't take the time to understand this he becomes the victim of things that frankly sometimes he didn't even know were happening
0: as 2017 ends i look back gratefully on another excellent year for the Brookings Cafeteria podcast We had 52 episodes, not including this one, over 60 guests, and covered dozens of policy topics. The Academy of Podcasters at Podcast Movement honored us once again with the award for best education podcast of the year. Our team experienced some changes, but still turned out a terrific show every week. To celebrate the closing of the year, today's show features my favorite clips from the past 12 months. I hope you enjoy it and perhaps take the opportunity to download full episodes that interest you, and also share the show with friends. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When you visit Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It helps other listeners find the show. And we're on the Brookings website at brookings.edu slash podcasts. If you have a question for a scholar, send it to bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll get an expert to answer it in an upcoming episode. Finally, I want to thank everyone who has made this show possible each week. The audio engineer and producer is Gaston who who is backed up from time to time by Mark Holscher and Ian McAllister. Vanessa Sauter was the producer for much of the year, and after she joined the Lawfare team, was replaced by Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Thanks to all three of you for your work, without which I would not be able to do mine. Bill Finan did the interviews with the authors of 11 Brookings Press Books, and I look forward to more of his excellent interviews in the new year. Adriana Pita is the host of our Intersections podcast and guest hosted some episodes. Thank you for your excellent preparation and contribution. I want to pay special recognition to Governance Studies fellow Molly Reynolds and Economic Studies senior fellow David Wessel, who both appeared on the show as a guest or contributor more than 12 times each this year to update us on what was happening in Congress and in the economy. Our interns this year have included Kelly Russo, Chris McKenna, who is now on staff, Sam Dart, Pamela Berman, and Julian Chung. Special thanks to Julian for helping pull this episode together by pulling all of the clips for the show. And also my thanks to Jessica Pavone, Cameron Zodder, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for their design and web support. And to the social media team here, Amanda Waldron, Ashley Woodshelling, and Ashley Fox for all they do to help promote podcast content. Thanks to my boss, David Nassar, for his continued leadership and support. And finally, thanks to you, the listeners, for downloading, sharing, and I hope enjoying the program. And now, here's the rest of the best of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast in 2017. Russia was a dominant topic throughout the year, both in terms of its interference in the presidential election and in its assertion of a power abroad. In an episode on the relationship between the US and Russia in terms of nuclear policy, arms control, and the conflict with Ukraine, I asked Stephen Piffer senior fellow and director of the Arms Control and Nonproliferation Initiative, whether Russia is really a threat to U.S. interests.
2: I think when you look at Russia today, say in contrast to five to seven years ago, Russia is at least a challenge and perhaps a threat to U.S. interests in a way that we didn't see it for most of the period from 1991 up until the mid-2000s. And you've seen it, I think, in several ways. First of all, you've seen a Russian military buildup both in terms of nuclear and conventional weapons, but also Russian readiness to use force. The seizure of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, followed by Russian instigation of and support for armed separatism in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, including with the provision of regular units of the Russian army. And that's changed things. I mean, that basically violated the fundamental rule of European security going back to the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, which is you do not use military force to change borders or to take territory. And so that understandably has countries near to Russia in the Baltic states, Poland, more concerned. Now, I don't think it's a high probability that you'd see some kind of Russian action against a Baltic state. But I wouldn't say the probability is zero. And five years ago, we would have said that probably was zero. So I think that's one area of concern. A second area of concern about Russia is this notion of hybrid warfare, where many analysts say, in fact, Russia isn't engaging in a form of conflict with the United States and the West even today. The most striking example, of course, was Russian interference in our election back in 2016. Uh, There seems to be little doubt that the Russians – Used cyber tactics to get information and then work to get that information released. And this isn't about relitigating the results of the 2016 election. I mean, I, I can't prove that John Doe in some small town in Pennsylvania voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton because of the leak. So it's not about that. But we should be concerned that this was a Russian attack on the democratic basis of our political system. And that should be a worry to all of us. And, and I guess the third factor here, which I worry a bit about is, when you look at the way President Putin and the Kremlin talk about the United States, they pretty much depict the United States as an adversary. And a lot of this is driven, I believe, by Russian domestic politics and the needs that Putin feels for legitimacy within his own country. So if you go back and look at the first two terms when Vladimir Putin was president from 2000 to 2008. At that time, he justified regime legitimacy on the basis of economics. And he was lucky because the price of oil went up, the Russian economy grew 7 8% a year, and you know, that worked well. And you'd have Russians say, Mr. Putin has this informal social compact with the Russian people in which he says, you're not going to have a political voice, but you're going to see your living standard rise, the economy grow. And that worked. When Mr. Putin came back to the presidency in 2011, 2012, the economic situation was pretty grim. And instead, you saw in his campaign a shift, a very strong anti-American theme, and sort of building on this idea of Russia as a great power. And a lot of that internal factor, this Russian legitimacy or the legitimacy of the Putin regime based on Russia as a great power, drives some of their foreign policy approaches in places like Ukraine and
0: Syria. One of the most popular episodes of the year was released in January, in which I asked Ted Geyer, the Vice President and Director of Economic Studies at Brookings, to talk about what he thought would be the top economic issues of the coming year. One of these issues cropped up during the campaign and again in the course of President-elect Trump's transition to the White House, when he intervened in a few specific cases of private business decisions to lay off employees, including, famously, the Carrier Air Conditioning Plant in Indiana. I asked Ted if this kind of targeted intervention with companies is good or bad for the economy? In his answer, he references the Brookings Center on Regulation and Markets.
3: So, you know, economists often find themselves in this position of talking to the economy in a way that is antithetical to what's good politics. My guess is that was good politics. Uh, my strong feeling is it was not good economics, and it's a troubling trend. I think the real strength of the U.S. economy is the dedication to the rule of law, to leave business decisions to business and to market participants based as much as possible on the demand and supply and the price mechanisms as such so when you have a politicized system where business decisions are being made you know whether or not it's to please the president directly whether or not it's through a twitter war i think those things are dangerous and dangerous indications and You know, I think, and this gets back to the start of the regulatory center I talked about and why I think the timing is particularly good. I think as the administrative state has grown, as the economy has become more complex, as Congress has become more dysfunctional, I think we've moved away from clear rules and more towards administrative discretion, a little bit more towards ambiguity about what exactly the rules are, which I think interferes with the business practices. And in the cases that you mentioned, you know, a kind of blatant politicizing of the process itself and of the business decision. So, you know, on my more optimistic days when that happened, I thought, okay, this is good politics and I don't like it and, and it's not going to be very consequential and it'll be kind of a few one-offs. But, you know, on my more troubled days, I think this is the sign of a, of a larger trend that will only increase and I think could have troubling consequences.
0: As I mentioned in the introduction, we had about a dozen book interviews conducted by my colleague, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press. In this clip, he spoke with senior fellow John Hudak, who is the author of the Brookings Press title, A Short History of Marijuana. Bill had asked John about the racial history of marijuana policy in the US.
4: The racial history is one that dates back quite some time. And after the Spanish-American War, there was significant Mexican immigration into the United States. And with it came all of the typical outgroup vilification that happens during waves of immigration. And in fact, oddly, we're getting back to that Mm -hmm. rhetoric in our current politics, which is really unfortunate. But... The plant was seen as something that was infecting good red-white communities, and it was being brought there first by Mexican immigrants. Then it became a product of the jazz movement, which was, of course, code for African-Americans. And this was a product that never really entered white communities, but it was something for Harlem. It was something for New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It was something for what at least some people thought of bad parts of society and culture— And that continued beyond just looking at certain groups and assigning that to rhetoric in media and from government about people committing crimes under the influence of marijuana. And those crimes were almost always perpetrated by a person of color. And oftentimes the victims were white Americans. And so this became a real divisive tool rhetorically, politically, that was steeped in an often under-discussed racist
0: chapter of American history. One of our recurring segments is Metro Lens, in which an expert from our Metropolitan Policy Program talks about his or her research on the issues affecting metropolitan America. Here's one on a topic we heard a lot about during the election, jobs and the out-of-work. Who are they?
5: Hi, I'm Martha Ross. I'm a fellow with the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Montgomery County, Ohio and its biggest city, Dayton, have struggled to adjust to economic changes in the past few decades. The decline in manufacturing jobs has hit the area hard and it is no longer the industrial powerhouse it once was. The county often comes out on the wrong side of various statistics with below average employment rates and educational levels and above average disability rates. My co-author, Natalie Holmes, and I examined Montgomery County, along with more than 100 other cities and counties, in our new analysis, Meet the Out of Work. Our goal was to go beyond the unemployment headlines to get a better sense of the people who are on the sidelines of the labor market. And because not all places fare equally well in the global economy, we wanted to look at the local level, since statistics at the national, state, and even regional level can mask substantial disparities. Montgomery County is in the southwestern part of Ohio, the same part of the state that author J.D. Vance grew up in and described in his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. It has a population of about 530,000, including Dayton. We identified different groups within Montgomery County's out-of-work population, and as in other jurisdictions, the largest group is what we call less educated, prime age people. Those with a high school diploma are less and primarily between the ages of 25 and 54. This group accounts for 41 percent of all out-of-work people in Montgomery County. They have a median age of 39, nearly half of them are male, and about one quarter worked in the past year. Two-thirds are white, 27 percent are African American, and eight percent are Latino. They have a median family income of about 25000 and about a third are caring for children. 25% report having a disability. This is a group facing a lot of barriers to employment. As we outline in the report, there are multiple strategies to help people improve their skills, get a job, and increase their earnings. These different approaches share two core characteristics. First, they offer education, training, and job search assistance tied to local labor market demand. They use labor market data and engage with employers to ensure that their curriculum and courses match up with current and projected job openings. And second, they tailor their programs to meet the needs of the people they are serving. They may help people improve their reading and math skills in order to succeed in college courses, job training, and apprenticeships. They may arrange childcare. they may provide coaching and mentoring, and so on. But on its own, more education and training won't get the job done, especially in weak market economies. As my colleague Amy Liu has highlighted, skills training and workforce preparation should be an integral part of a region's economic development strategy. This is hard and long-term work, but if regions knit together and build on their assets, such as industry clusters civic leadership, and educational institutions. They can grow good jobs, prepare and connect residents to those jobs, and build or maintain a competitive advantage. This endeavor is a marathon, not a sprint, but it is not a race we want to lose.
0: You can download and listen to more MetroLens segments on our SoundCloud channel. In June, President Trump announced that the United States would withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, negotiated and agreed to by nearly all of the world's nations in 2015. I interviewed Nathan Hultman, a non resident senior fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program, on what happens next. He called the president's decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement a major error. Why is it a major error? I asked.
6: Well, that's probably an understatement in terms of what the actual reality is. It's an error for a couple of reasons. And first and foremost, the United States has been playing in recent years a very important leadership role in the global community. The lack of that leadership will be felt. It will, in fact, slow down. It will harm the ability of the global community to hit its overall targets. It's not the end of the story, but it will uh, hurt. And I think we have to acknowledge that the, you know, the withdrawal of the United States and the lack of leadership from the federal level in the United States is a significant, if potentially temporary, blow to the process. Now, that said, there are a number of reasons to believe that the the overall process within Paris and and even more broadly, the overall global effort to address climate change and to continue to drive forward the transition in our global energy system, that will not stop. There are a lot of reasons that won't stop, not least the fact that a lot of response to Trump's decision has been to kind of double down and increase the effort in other places to hit those targets.
0: The data are clear that a person with a college degree earns more over their lifetime than someone without a college degree. But it turns out among people with that degree, there is great variation in earnings based on their choices and career path and course of study. I interviewed Ryan Nunn, Policy Director for the Hamilton Project, on research he co-authored about career paths after college. To set the context, I asked him to discuss how exactly college graduates do better in the labor market than non-college grads.
7: So one important aspect of this is labor market outcomes, uh, which are very different for college and non-college graduates. So not all of these differences are necessarily due to the education itself itself that the students are getting, but the disparities are really striking. So over their lifetimes, college graduates earn about $600,000 more than those with only a high school diploma. As of April 2017, in the latest data, people 25 and older with at least a four-year degree had an unemployment rate of only 2.4%, while those with only a high school diploma had an unemployment rate of 4.6%. You know, what's important about this is that we're in a strong labor market right now. During times when conditions are weaker, people with more education are particularly insulated from the hardship in the sense that they're usually able to find employment. And these are just the labor market benefits. So there's research that indicates that college graduates have better health, lower mortality rates, and even better subjective well-being, reporting higher life evaluation.
0: The project is accompanied by a terrific interactive where you can explore post-college earnings based on your own major. Earlier in the year, I interviewed Steve Pfeiffer about Russian foreign policy and another scholar, Pavel Bayev, about what drives Russian President Vladimir Putin. I was able to put together many strands of Russia and Putin interest in a late-year interview with Alina Polyakova, a David M. Rubinstein Fellow in our Center on the U.S. and Europe. We talked about the nature of Russia's cyber interference in elections around the world and what Russia seeks to gain by it. I asked her to summarize the nature of Russia's interference in the U.S. election.
8: I think what we saw in the United States in 2016 was, in many ways, uh, replication of what has been happening in other post-Soviet countries, especially Ukraine. And you mentioned cyber. But I think cyber and media, the information environment, they're very much linked Right. So what we saw actually happening in the United States wasn't just a cyber hack. Countries, intelligence services are constantly trying to gather information. We break into each other's servers, et cetera, for intelligence gathering purposes. But what we saw was this merger of cyber attacks with a disinformation campaign. And it was really that latter part of the disinformation campaign that was so significant because we really saw our national narratives around the elections uh, being hijacked by a foreign power, them setting the agenda on what the news media were covering at the time. And I think it really took, I mean, we're still in that moment now, actually, a sort of moment of reckoning, trying to understand how did we get here? How are we so easily manipulated? And I don't mean manipulate in the sense that I think what the Russians did in 2016 actually changed the outcome of the election. I don't think it did. I think we would have had the same outcome anyways. But what was particularly shocking is just how brazen and out in the open – the Russian campaign was. And when I say Russian, I should be clear that I'm not necessarily talking about just the Russian government. I mean, we know from intelligence agencies in the United States that the Russian intelligence services were involved in the hacking, especially, and also in leaking that information to WikiLeaks. But there are also many, many proxies and intermediaries and, you know, renegade volunteers, whatever you want to call them, that are de facto helping the Russian government, but we can't necessarily attribute them to working directly for the Russian government.
0: You can hear more from Alina Polyakova on the Lawfare Podcast, where she guest hosts a regular discussion of Russian politics and society. In June, we produced a very special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. It was the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war between Israel and a coalition of Arab states, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. By the end of the six days of fighting, Israel had captured territories on all three fronts. The Sinai Peninsula and Gaza Strip from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan. And with those territories, hundreds of thousands of people, primarily Palestinians, today numbering millions, came under Israeli control. In this episode, five Brookings scholars shared their insights and expertise on a range of current policy issues that have roots in the conflict. Following are Martin Indyk, the executive vice president of Brookings and former U.S. ambassador to Israel, and foreign policy fellow Khaled Elgindi, both talking about UN Security Council Resolution 242, which passed in the war's aftermath.
9: Well, the 67 war was like a cursed blessing for diplomats and I think for Israel as well. It put Israel in occupation of territory that could be used for negotiating uh, peace agreements with its neighbors and that was the essence of UN Resolution 242, which was passed in the Security Council after the Six-Day War and provided the basis for negotiations provided for direct negotiations, provided for the return of territories occupied in 67, but it didn't specify whether it should be all the territories or some of the territories, but it did have the principle of the inadmissibility of the retention of territories by force. So there was a lot of ambiguity in that that left room for the diplomats to try to negotiate Deals, And when you look back over the 50 years, you see that that even though there were wars in between, most notably the 1973 Yom Kippur War and also wars in Lebanon, wars in Gaza, nevertheless, there was a kind of steady progress uh, based on Resolution 242 in which Israel exchanged all of the Sinai for peace with Egypt and then parts of territory along the Jordan border for peace with Jordan. And we engaged in intensive negotiations with the Israelis and the Syrians that would have led to, if they'd culminated in a peace agreement, to Israel withdrawing to the 67 line with minor border rectifications there off the Golan Heights. And that essentially is the question of what happens in the West Bank.
10: Resolution 242, which was passed shortly after the war, laid out – the formula that still guides American and international policy with regard to the conflict uh, right up until today. And it's embodied in the so-called land for peace formula. That is Israel withdraws from occupied Arab lands in exchange for peace and recognition from the Arab side. The problem from the Palestinian perspective is that 242 did not address the Palestinians. It sort of dealt with the conflict as one between sovereign states, Arab states, Egyptian territory had been occupied in the Sinai, Syrian territory. And from the standpoint of Israel and the United States, the West Bank was Jordanian. And so this was seen as a conflict between states. And so the Palestinians were addressed merely as a refugee problem, quote unquote. And that omission, in addition to... A lack of any reference to Palestinian self determination is what prompted the PLO to reject Resolution 242. And it took several more years for the PLO finally to accept Resolution 242 and recognize Israel, which it did in 1988. And then it took another dozen or so years for the United States to accept the idea of Palestinian statehood. And so that's kind of where we are now, where we have a general consensus politically among Israelis, Palestinians, Arab states, Europe, the United States, all of the major actors and stakeholders around a two-state solution, but we haven't quite gotten there.
0: A new research report from the Center for Universal Education here at Brookings shows how promoting girls' education, reproductive rights, and life skills are also effective strategies for mitigating the effects of climate change. Here's a bit from my interview with report co-author Christina Kowak, in which I asked her how promoting girls' reproductive rights affect climate change response.
11: So girls who have completed their secondary education are likely to have one less child over her lifetime than a girl who has only completed primary schooling. So we know that with increased levels of education, there is a relationship to lower numbers of children that she bears across her lifespan. But the issue here is that, or at least what we're arguing that many actors that are sort of gravitating towards this approach are missing, is that the underlying lever of change is actually the impact of education on her ability to control her reproductive life, So although we know that research shows that there's a strong correlation between girls' education and reduced fertility rates, there's something deeper that's happening that most actors who are promoting girls' education and climate change are missing.
0: There's some ethical issues with reducing fertility rates. It's like, oh, we're going to have population control rather than a focus on gender justice and a rights-based approach. Can you kind of address that conflict a little bit?
11: One of the major concerns here is that it places the cost of reproductive decisions on the shoulders of girls and women in the global south while ignoring other kinds of anthropogenic factors that contribute to climate change like consumption levels and technology that are typically and have historically been driven by the global north. It also ignores other population dynamics like urbanization, aging, household consumption levels, and household size that also affect how demographic trends can influence carbon emissions. So by moving away from this heavy focus on girls' education and women's eventual fertility, what we're really saying is that we need to approach women's reproductive health from a gender justice and a rights-based approach, which allows us to avoid some of these more tricky terrain where population-focused agendas might be misappropriated by coercive state policies that further infringe on the reproductive rights of marginalized women in the global South. We also argued that a focus on more of a gender justice rights-based approach to women's reproductive health also creates a more equitable climate action that is focused on girls' empowerment and gender equality rather than her reproductive decisions.
0: The idea that there is a deep state of personnel inside the U.S. government that is working to thwart President Trump's agenda gained currency over the last year. In the context of a conversation that I had with senior fellow Bruce Rydell about Pakistan, I asked him if there is a deep state in the U.S. government. Bruce is director of the Intelligence Project here and a leading expert on South Asia and the Middle East, plus is a 30-year veteran of the CIA. His answer was revealing about the question itself, but more importantly, about Pakistan.
12: I don't think there's a deep state in the United States. (laughs) There is a deep state in Pakistan. Let me describe it briefly. Pakistan is a democratic country with a freely elected civilian government that actually passed a milestone two years ago when one freely elected government passed power to another freely elected government that had never happened before. But underneath the civilian state is the military state, what people call the deep state which is the Pakistani Army and the Pakistani Intelligence Service, known as the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, or ISI. The civilian state has little, if any, control over what the military and the intelligence services do. It doesn't even pretend, really, to have control over it. And Pakistanis know that the intelligence services and the army can literally kill anyone they want to and get away with it. And there are thousands of disappeared who've ended up either in jail or, in many cases, being killed by this deep state. Now, in the United States, we have a military, but it's subject to the balance of civilian rule. The head of our military is a civilian. The current case, Jim Mattis, is a retired military, but that's unusual. Usually, it's run by civilians. We have an office of the Secretary of Defense run by civilians in order to ensure civilian control over the military. Our intelligence services are similarly overseen by numerous checks and balances, including the Congress of the United States. So to make the argument that we are now somehow a deep state like Pakistan, I think is just
0: absurd. In his recent book, Dream Hoarders, How the Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem and What to Do About It, Senior Fellow Richard Reeves argues that American society has become very class-defined and that we can take effective action to reduce opportunity hoarding and thus promote broader opportunity. In the course of the conversation he had with Brookings Press director Bill Finan, the fact that Reeves is also author of a biography of British philosopher and political economist John Stuart Mill came up. Here's Bill Finan and then Richard Reeves. You're the author of a biography of the
13: philosopher and economist John Stuart (laughs) Mill. I'm curious to know what you think Mill would say of the unequal system we have in America today. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to you for bringing John Stuart Mill into this conversation. Let's hope it survives the edit. (laughs) Because, oh, by the way, Mill is needed more today than ever on issues of free speech as well. True, Um, true. But I think that, you know, Mill's liberalism, I'm using liberalism in the proper sense of the the word, was actually kind of based on a really kind of very strong view that actually most Americans, I think, would endorse of kind of the against inherited status. The idea that, you know, you inherit your position in society, which I kind of thought was one of the reasons why America was born in the first Mm -hmm. place. But it turns out that for various reasons, complex reasons, and very often as unintentional consequences, actually status is pretty strongly inherited in the US. And so the class system does actually mean that too much is passed on from one generation to the next. And I know that from his attitudes towards education and from inheritance and taxation, that Mill was very strongly in favour of a society that was genuinely individualist, that was genuinely one where you could carve your own path and you could rise if that was what you chose to do, and everything—a glass floor, opportunity hoarding, this kind of dream hoarding—that I identify in my book—all of those things stand in the way of the kind of classless society that not only every liberal properly defined, but I think every American should support.
0: Another issue that we heard repeatedly during the presidential campaign and also in this first year of the Trump presidency is that immigrants to the US steal jobs from American citizens, hence the supposed need for a border wall between the United States and Mexico. Senior Fellow Wanda Feldbaugh-Brown authored a Brookings essay this year on the true costs of a border wall for the economy and the environment. Here's her answer to my question, do immigrants steal jobs and lower wages for American workers?
14: So the overwhelming evidence is no, at least not very significantly. Many studies have showed that the effect of immigration, both legal and illegal immigration, on jobs is very small, very marginal, and that immigrants mostly affect both wages and employment of some of the most underprivileged U.S. residents, which is significant, of course. Those are people who would be high school dropouts. Those are people who might be prior immigrants and who are affected by the new influx of immigrants, so people who have very low skills and find it very difficult to have any flexibility in employment and, in fact, have very poor human capital and find it difficult to compete. So these people are affected, and clearly, U.S. policies need to be geared toward how to help, how to empower those people, how to provide them with education and skills so they can find legal, effective employment. Much of people, particularly undocumented workers, many immigrants, however, work in jobs that legal US residents do not want. They are some of the most difficult, backbreaking jobs in agriculture. Perhaps the most notorious one is the seafood and fish cutting industry. Very tough job, very physically demanding, quite unpleasant, and many sort of revelations over the past decade of conditions sometimes akin to slavery around the world, but also similar exposures about a decade ago in the United States. So it's these jobs where vast number of fresh immigrants end up in. Immigrants, however, are also crucial for the U.S. economy in other ways. The U.S. birth rates have gone down and U.S. population is aging, The number of people who are drawing various entitlements, social security, Medicare, and other benefits, it's rising. Right now, it's about 40 million people, and it's expected in 30 years to perhaps go as high as 80 million people, 86 million people, in fact. That, however, means that with stagnant labor force, the burden on those who are employed will be significantly higher, and that's also in an era of really decreased U.S. labor productivity. So if you look comparatively around the world, the countries that have gotten into great economic stagnation, Japan, many countries in Western Europe are precisely countries where labor productivity dropped off and birth rates leveled out with the burden of the ever-shrinking labor force being greater and greater vis-a-vis the longevity of people who are drawing benefits. And the U.S. has avoided that because of immigration, legal immigration as well as illegal immigration. Now, President Trump is determined not just to reduce illegal immigration, or in fact to deport people, but also to significantly reduce legal migration. For example, endorsed the bill that circulated in the summer in the Congress to reduce the number of legal immigrants by half in 10 years. That has very bad repercussions for the U.S. economy.
0: You can download and read her essay on the wall at brookings.edu slash the wall. Finally today, I had the opportunity to interview Andre Perry, another of our David M. Rubenstein fellows. He is part of the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and researches race and structural inequality, education and economic inclusion. One of his research projects is a focus on the more than 1200 majority black communities in the United States. I asked him why he is doing this research.
15: I state that black cities are generally treated like black people. So if we're really going to address the needs of individuals
0: and cities, we really have to examine how we treat both. In your piece on our website that introduces the research project that you've embarked upon, you open with telling some of the story of Black Lives Matter. And you write in the piece, if black lives matter, then black cities matter Can you explain why you make that connection? After
15: Trayvon Martin was murdered, one of the lessons learned, if we're going to improve any kind of system and or individuals, we're going to have to make sure that they have a right to exist. So for cities as for individuals, if we're really going to seek improvement, if we're going to try to uplift the economic options for people, we're really going to have to assume that these places have a right to stand. And so that's where I begin, not necessarily saying that we should keep black cities the way they are or that we should not reform certain things, but we have to say that these places matter enough for us to invest in, for us to consider, and that for me is the crux of what I'm trying to do. It's to find assets, to look at things to build upon, but more importantly to say, hey, these places matter and they should exist, and we can then move forward from there.
0: That's all for this special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. Thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing. You can visit our website at brookings.edu slash bcp to find all of these and more episodes. Also visit brookings.edu slash podcasts to find our other shows, including Intersections, Five on 45, and Events. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. Send feedback, email, and questions to bcp at brookings.edu. I look forward to bringing you more great conversations about ideas and solutions in 2018. Happy New Year. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.